Hello and welcome. This is Ron Cohen. I'm a tax partner at Greenstein Rogoff Olson and Company, CPAs. We're here in beautiful downtown Fremont, California. And every morning I wake up in the shadows of Mission Peak. This is my uh, self-indulgent narcissistic time with you doing some review of the tax developments during the last week. Today is November 29th, 2022. And these dates are really important because things change so quickly and something I might have said might not be true any, long, any, any longer, even a week or two later. So note the date. Okay, so uh, take no reliance on what you hear in this podcast because uh, we're not doing any official research for you and you're not signed up as a client. This is just kind of my musings and, and discussion. Plagiarism is okay. Everything in the tax world, we copy from the Internal Revenue Code or the regulations, and there's lots of smart tax lawyers and CPAs who have all kinds of information on the internet open to the public. They're trying to find new clients and impress people how smart they are. And we all copy from each other and, and uh, we always try to give credit where it's due. But uh, plagiarism is not a problem. We're not writing any novels. Largely, I try to stay away from national politics or even local politics. But tax legislation is clearly a political animal. It's uh, written up in Washington. Uh, various debates and arguments happen. So when the politics relates to tax legislation, I do feel free to uh, give some editorial comments and opinions. Our firm does, oh, about 13, 1,400 tax returns of various sites, uh, types from uh, little old grandmothers to high-tech entrepreneurs and local businesses of various types all the way to multinational organizations. So uh, feel free to give us a call if you need some assistance. Just to let you know where I'm coming from, I am no cheerleader for the tax system. I think it's all part of a technocratic administrative state that we've built up here in the U.S. since World War II. And uh, the tax uh, system is uh, way too tedious, granular, intrusive. But it is the law, and the government does have to raise taxes, so we always try to get an A+. Plus. On any tax returns we do, not an A minus, not a B, not a C, an A plus. And we take the view that the best audit, tax audit, is the one that never comes. And the best IRS person is the one you never meet. With so many of the new tax laws, they uh, take the view that, well, the, there'll be a tax benefit, but we're going to add more process. So in my view, the additional process is the new type of punishment we get for participating in the tax system. I will give you a tax benefit, but we'll make you fill out a 20-line form under the penalties of perjury and jail time if you do something significantly wrong. So that's, that's a wrong way to administer a tax system. Uh, I enjoy my career and helping clients, but I think uh, they should basically throw out the tax system, start over again, come up with something that's faster, better, cheaper, more elegant, more reasonable. Okay, uh, you may want to check into our Magic Partners podcast called American Dreams, where he reviews um, uh, the life and achievements of many local and national entrepreneurs. You can find all that, including these podcasts, on www.groco.com. Our phone number here is 510-797-8661. 
and uh, I'm an extension 237. Any of our partners can help you. We're about 12 miles north of San Jose and 35 miles south of San Francisco. Always happy to help. This week uh, on the podcast, we're going to cover the fact that when it comes to tax laws, sometimes inflation can be good and that tax law makes various adjustments to accommodate uh, inflation, make it less uh, a factor in increasing your taxes. We're going to cover what's happening in the sausage machine in Congress uh, related to certain legislation going on um, um, since the midterm elections. There's certain shifting of power uh, in some ways, not a whole lot because there's not a huge majority for the Republicans um, and some other miscellaneous items in uh, the developments. I just want to say thank you uh, for your patience. If you were uh, actively waiting for me to give a podcast every week, I've been away for a while. Uh, we finished up all the October 15th deadlines, which is the final deadline for individual returns and for corporation returns uh, that were uh, from the still on extension from 2021. And uh, because uh, so many of our clients are large uh, uh, engagements, uh, a lot of those just don't get done until the end because they're waiting for K-1s and other information to come in. They come in shortly before the October 15th deadline. So it's a bit of a panic. Uh, more than a bit. And then I kind of uh, bow out for a while in exhaustion until I come out of my coma after that deadline is over. And then we have various internal housekeeping tasks running our business here at the firm uh, and some personal issues and just uh, vacationing, being around with the kids and so forth. And now we're getting back into the groove of uh, taking care of some non-deadline oriented due dates. And <laughs> take a deep breath and say, okay, now it's time to do tax planning for 2022 because it's already November, uh, almost December. And um, we want to make sure that people uh, do their tax planning. In fact, next week we'll do a podcast about 10 or 15 tax planning thoughts and ideas. Everything I say here is somehow referenced in the show notes with links and so forth. So if you, uh, if you hear something you're interested in, I'll uh, generally have the links in the show notes. You can go read the articles for yourself. And so, okay, so let's uh, get going first on, uh, you know, uh, under the Inflation Reduction Act that passed in August, there were a number of items related to climate change, and many of the provisions specifically focused on uh, direct consumer incentives to buy energy-efficient appliances clean vehicles, rooftop solar systems, and invest in home energy efficiency. Uh, the bill provides a greater opportunity for homeowners to take their home to a more eco-friendly uh, situation while receiving cash incentives from the government to do so. The bill included $9 billion in consumer home energy rebate programs to electrify home appliances and for energy efficient retrofit. So, Basically, you know, you go and want to buy a new washer dryer, you know, you want to get the type that says um, uh, eco, uh, what is that called? Eco, uh, something, it says eco something, eco, eco savings or whatever. And often with your local utility, you can uh, send them a copy of the receipt and get a, get a rebate from them if you're replacing an older one. There's many, uh, there's many of uh, that type of incentive where, and that's, uh, and besides what your local utility may send you a check for, you can uh, apply for a, on your tax return, 
a residential energy credit. They expanded them. They made some of those credits bigger. Uh, generally, they, they, were, they were pretty small, uh, putting aside the solar systems. That was always a big one. Um, ten, year, 10 years of consumer tax credits to make home energy efficient and run on clean energy, incentivizing heat pumps, rooftop solar, electric HVAC, that's air conditioning, heating, and water heaters. Look, I uh, I was watching some uh, TV, and uh, they were show going through, uh, it was HGTV, I can say that, and they were going through uh, putting a heat pump run water heat heater in your home. So it, it's a whole system where it grabs the heat out of the earth and runs it through the water heater, and the water heater is supposed to last for 20, 30 years, and there's some tax credits. Uh, the heat pumps are pretty cool. Um, um, here, <laughs> uh, just um, a little personal point here in lovely Fremont, California. I checked into it, and I was told, no, you can't get a permit to drill into the ground to uh, put the piping in there where it, it, it runs some fluid through the uh, the ground to get the heat that's under under the ground level. You know, it goes down 8 to 10 feet. Uh, some big commercial places could do that, but they're not going to let the uh, residential folks drill. So that's a shame. But I know in lots of the country, uh, that's not a problem at all. They'll let you um, put in a full heat pump system for heating, air conditioning, and water heater. So that's good. Rooftop solar has been a lot around for a long time. There's a, there's a large credit. Uh, if you are the initial installer of the solar system, now you and I all watch TV and you see all these uh, programs on, uh, you know, getting these solar systems and some are fairly cheap, a certain amount per month, where you are in essence leasing the solar system. You don't own it. It's on your roof forever till it wears out, which is usually maybe 20, 30 years. They do wear out, but you're leasing it right now. And I've had a few questions over the years. Well, well, don't I get the, the, the solar federal tax credit, a $10,000? And the answer is no. You don't because you don't own it. The leasing company owns it. You're just paying rent. And uh, so just making that point. Okay. Uh, maximum $4,000 consumer credit uh, for lower and middle income individuals to buy used, used, that's the key word, used clean uh, air, clean uh, vehicles, EVs, elect, elect, uh, you know, electric vehicles. Uh, that That's a change. It, it didn't apply to used one. So that, that's a case where somebody buys, just pulling out a name here, a Tesla, and uh, they get a credit and uh, they drive it and uh, turn it in for a new one after three years, whatever, don't know, right? And uh, then you come along and you buy it off a used car dealer. <laughs> if you can find one, I hear they're a very short supply. Uh, you get another credit. Um, and, and there were issues about, uh, the, you know, at what level of income do the credits kick in? So anyway, if you're buying an electronic vehicle, to be fair, Tesla's Nissan Leaf, General Motors has some. I think Ford's working on one. Um, I know Audi has some. Subaru definitely has some EVs. Uh, look into all those things. Don't just take the word of your friendly car dealership. You know, actually talk to your CPA or tax preparer, enrolled agent, or do some research on the Internet. Uh, but more people will be able to now get a credit on EVs and for used ones than in the past. Get up to a $7,500 tax credit for buying a new clean vehicle. So that's always good. Yeah, that's, that's good. I've taken a lot of those for clients, uh, and, um, and they're good. Okay, then 
$1 billion grant program that was under the Inflation Reduction Act for affordable housing uh, that are made more energy efficient. So they come in and put a new heating system in or a solar system on the roof, and, and uh, they're just all to incentivize people to uh, move to these um, new systems uh, running off sunlight. Um, uh, there's uh, some commercial areas there, you know, for windmills, all kinds of things if you're in the commercial area uh, where you can do and uh, now get more rebates than you used to. Okay, moving on here. So, um, well, even with the Inflation Reduction Act, not to get political, there's still plenty of inflation. And um, one commentator uh, who was quoting some official sources that for the average family in America, the average middle-class family in America, inflation has taken $9,000 of purchasing power out of their hands. So even if they got a raise, even if they got a big raise, unless they got like a 15 or 20% raise, they really didn't get a raise because everything else in their life went up to more than compensate for any raise. And that's, that's a terrible thing. Again, this is a tax podcast, not a political podcast. So I'll leave it at that. But when there is inflation, I'll give you a little history that the, the tax law has a number of areas where it automatically adjusts so that you're not paying more taxes simply because inflation has occurred. Again, you got a pay raise. Well, you're no better off because all your costs went up. So you don't want the cost of, of taxes to go up simply because you got more dollar bills, but have less or the same purchasing power. And I'm old enough at 63 years old to remember when they came up with all this stuff. I was just uh, finishing up college and this was under the Jimmy Carter days, uh, President Jimmy Carter. And, uh, you know, the World War II generation was uh, in the later parts of their life and they had never seen inflation uh, strike out the way it did there. And and so there was enough political will in Congress to go, you know, we're going to make mathematical adjustments so you're not paying more taxes, especially older folks on a fixed income who vote. They vote a lot. So uh, this was an attempt to accommodate them. But everybody, right, it's not fair to pay more, more hard dollars in taxes when you're, when you're uh, being, when you, have, when you have more income simply because the Federal Reserve or Congress, whatever, put more dollar bills in the world and uh, the same, you know, how many Big Macs or, or um, uh, eggs or chickens can you buy at the food store has not changed. In fact, uh, in the last year here, it's, it's terribly gone down, uh, even, even more than compensating any raises if you were lucky enough to get a raise uh, or aren't on fixed income or aren't working at all, you know, who knows? Uh, so uh, there are various inflation adjustments. So the first one is the standard deduction. So this is people who take itemized deductions for uh, usually mortgage interest, real estate taxes, charitable contributions. There's, there's a list of some other ones. Um, uh, the tax law was uh, under the Trump tax bill in 2017, uh, the tax jobs and tax cuts and jobs act in 2017, they dramatically raised the standard deduction. They'd like doubled it. So th that was a good thing, putting aside, you know, putting aside the Inflation Reduction Act in that uh, rather than having to add up all your deductible medical expenses, your real estate taxes, your state income taxes, there's certain limitations on those, you know, we've talked about in other podca podcasts, uh, charitable contributions, 
uh, certain investment expenses. Uh, uh, you add them all up. And if uh, they were only a benefit to you, if they were more than the standard deduction. So in the old days, standard deduction for a single person was like um, $12,000. So if you add up all those items I just listed and you're not over $12,000, well, you just take the standard deduction. You essentially get it for free. You don't have to document it. You don't have to prove it in an audit. You just get it. Now, especially here in the Bay Area, a lot of us just chuckle. <laughs> we just chuckle <laughs> because our mortgage payments and our real estate taxes were so big that, uh, you know, 12000 or even for married filing jointly, it was 20-something thousand in the old days. Um, that's nothing. We have thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 of mortgage interest and real estate taxes. So we were always taking the itemized deductions. Um, but but on a nation, nationwide level, they doubled the itemized deductions in 2017. They put an inflation adjustment in there. So each year it creeps up and creeps up a little bit. Uh, and you don't have to document it. You just uh, give you examples. So the standard deduction for a married couple filing jointly for the year 2023 raises to 27700 That's up $1,800, $1,800 from the prior year. So again, you get a free deduction. You don't have to prove it. You're married filing jointly. It went up $1,800 because some rocket scientist in Washington figured out that will somewhat accommodate that you so that you're getting the same benefit out of the standard deduction as you were before this inflation kicked in a year ago. Single taxpayers and married individuals filing separately, the standard deduction is $13,850 for 2023, up $800. And of household, the standard deduction will be $20,800 for 2023, up $1,400 from the amount for tax year 2022. Again, all this will be nicely in the show notes. Also, your tax software or your tax preparer, it all does all this automatically. You don't have to keep a memory of it. And if you, even if you didn't use software, you filled out the forms by end, the forms very clearly tell you what the current um, standard deduction is. So again, it's not a thing of having good memories. Uh, for 2023, the top marginal tax rate remains at $37,000 for single, uh, 37%, excuse me, 37% for individual single taxpayers with incomes over 578125 That top rate kicks in for married couples at 693750 so, yes, and I talked to a lot of clients. Yes, the tax top rate is 37%. I'll review the lower rates in a second. But uh, don't cry too much because it only kicks in and whether you're, when your income uh, for married couples over 693750 which is a relatively high number. Not, not uncommon at all here in the Bay Area and amongst my clients. You get two highly paid, successful executives, husband and wife, Get seven hundred thousand a year, gross income on tax return, not uncommon at all. And then, then their their federal rate is thirty seven percent, and um, uh, you know their California rate is like a god awful eleven or twelve percent. It goes to thirteen point three percent when you have uh, income over a million dollars here in California. I always like to bring up, and you cross the border into Nevada, and the uh, income tax rate is zero. You go to Texas. It's zero. You go to Washington State. It's zero. Uh, the only other side of that that uh, thing I like to talk about is that 
yes, their income tax rates are zero. Uh, there's a, uh, several other states with zero rates, Florida, um, I think Wyoming. Uh, the, but the offset is the real estate taxes on your home. If you have a home or, or you're paying rent, you're paying the real estate taxes indirectly for the owner through your rent, right? Th those are much, much, much higher in the states that um, do not have an income tax. But put that aside. So the other rates are, uh, so you started, top rate was 37%. Uh, then there's 35%, 32%, 24%, 22%, and then 12%. That comes over 11,000, 22,000 for married filing joint couples. The lowest rate's 10% for income on income uh, for single individuals with income over 11,000, uh, 22,000 for married filing jointly. Uh, uh, with exceptions, there's there you know if a lot of your comes from capital gain, there's a George Bush rule that came in where you can have a lot of zero rate tax income on the special capital gains rule. Again, your computer, your software, if you crunch it by hands on the form forms, uh, will uh, lead that to lead you through that. But my point in all that is saying they're making adjustments, they're raising the tax bracket amounts so that you hopefully aren't paying more tax simply because of inflation in the, um, in the uh, overall economy. Is, there, is it a one-to-one -one exact matching? Absolutely not. They don't, there's no way to do that. But uh, they, they, are, they say it keys off the uh, Commerce Department, uh, CPI, Consumer Price Index. <laughs> I, I'm giggling to myself. That number is never, never right. And it's always way low. So when the government says inflation's 8%, it's really like 12 or 15 percent. Uh, you can go back to see uh, that um, uh, John Williams is an economist that has a wonderful site. He's been around forever. And um, um, on his site, he goes through and he lays out how inflation was computed when Ronald Reagan was president. Not that Ronald Reagan's anything special for this purpose, uh, but they've made all these adjustments so that the inflation appears to be lower. But when it, how it was calculated when I was a young man, uh, uh, it's way higher. Uh, and it's never the reverse, right? It's never that, oh, oh, the real inflation rate's lower than what's being reported. No, no, no. So the real inflation's really higher. So um, since the tax adjustments I'm reviewing are keyed off the CPI, they are inherently too low. Uh, in other words, the, the standard deduction should be higher. The tax brackets should be higher because your real purchasing power of the dollars you make, even taking into account your uh, uh, salary increases, if you're lucky enough to get one, um, you're not at all even. You're, in other words, you're you're losing you're losing purchasing power after tax as time goes on. Very very sad, uh, but I'll leave it at that. That's a whole other political situation. The alternative minimum tax exemption, which keeps people out of alternative minimum tax. You know, every on every single tax return you do. Uh, AMT is being computed either by your software or even if you don't even put it in the form because you didn't know you had to, the IRS computer in the background figures out what your AMT would be and you pay the higher of the two taxes, which is why I always put the AMT form in the return, even if it doesn't apply, just so you can see how the alternative calculation work. Well, most people are kept out of the AMT because in 2000, uh, uh, well, forever, for many years, there's an adjustment where you get an exemption amount uh, that would re keep you out of the AMT. It's going to go up to 81300 
And then that phases out at uh, 578,000. Um, um, and so that gets really complicated. Uh, again, the, about 6% of people end up paying AMT. It seems to be uh, me and all my clients <laughs> are part of the 6%. So we're really interested for most of you. It's not an issue. And it's not an issue computationally because the AMT exemption is keeping you out of owing uh, a higher AMT tax than your regular tax. All right, for 2022, the maximum earned income tax credit's going up. That's like a free payment. If your income, uh, you have a child, your income's low, uh, you get a check from the IRS instead of owing them money. Uh, it's refundable. You get the check. Uh, you don't have to do anything for it other than fill out the form. And the top, uh, top earned income tax credit's going up to $7,430, up from $6,935. Again, trying to keep people at their same after-tax purchasing power and, uh, in my view, not, not, not getting there, but at least helping. For 2023, the monthly limitation on qualified transportation fringe benefits. Is, on some employers, they give you a free tax-free amount uh, for paying for parking and commuting. Uh, that, that amount can be as high tax-free as $300 for 2023, up $20 from last year. All right, there's certain increases in how much you can put into a flexible spending health account. Uh, it's going to increase to $3,050. This is different than an HSA, a health savings account. That's a different thing going on. Okay, um, just rolling through some of these. Here's an important one. Uh, well, 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 if you live outside the U.S., you'll know about the foreign earned income exclusion. That's, uh, that's uh, raised to $120,000, up from $112,000 for 2000. Uh, uh, for, uh, so, so it's up, um, and uh, that's good. Uh, uh, um, you know, there's a there's a uh, there's a situation where you take the foreign earned income exclusion instead of the foreign tax credit. For those, so the, for those of you who are listening and thinking it's a great deal, it's not a great deal. Uh, it, it's just trying to make the computation a little easier if you live offshore. I'll leave it at that. Okay, here's an important one. For estates of decedents who die in 2023, very cheerful subject, who die in 2023, the basic exclusion from estate taxes is going to go up to $12,920,000, up from $12,060,000 for estates of decedents who died um, uh, um, in uh, 2022. So again, for 2023, it's going up. We're about to enter 2023, uh, and the the whole point of that is to keep you from having to fill out a Form 706, a state tax return, and much more importantly, having to pay taxes, uh, the death tax on top of income taxes um, uh, for in the year of death, death taxes on your net worth. Um, husband or wife, they get that $12,920,000 like twice, uh, once when the first spouse dies. Once when the second spouse dies, so now you're, you know, you're up to like twenty-five million dollars if you do your estate planning correctly. Uh, um, uh, credit to President Obama, who in the last part of his second term actually raised that up uh, uh, much higher than it used to be. When I first started being a CPA back in 1981, if you died with a net worth over six hundred and fifty thousand dollars. 
$650,000. You had to file an estate tax return. Oh, it was just terrible. Now, there's other reasons to file an estate tax return because of uh, certain elections with regard to trust and generation skipping trust, and to get a step up in basis and to just get your estate all laid out, uh, maybe called for by the trusts and, and determining who gets what under your will. So for a lot there, but the good news is, is the uh, estate tax exclusion has galloped up um, to $12,920,000 per spouse. Uh, there's other issues about the marital deduction. I'll, I can't uh, go through everything, um, but that's uh, good news. Again, desperately trying to keep up so that you're not paying tax on pure inflation increases in what everything's worth. The annual gift exclusion for 2023 will be $17,000. For years, it was $10,000. And for years, it was $14,000. Then it was $15,000. Then it went uh, for 2022, it was $16,000. Now it's $17,000 for 2023. That is, you can give $17,000 to everybody you know. (laughs) And, uh, and, And in the gift area, it is the giver, the donor, you, the person who is giving the gift, who potentially has to file a Form 709 and pay a gift tax return. Usually it doesn't apply for various technical reasons, but you still have to file the gift tax form to let them know and they accumulate all the gifts you made during your year, your life, excuse me, during your life. And that takes into account how much you get taxed when you ultimately pass away under the death tax. Ah, that's a whole course. I can't go through it all here. But the good news is for those of you who use this, uh, the gift tax exclusion for 2023 has gone up to 17000 from 16000 2022. We're coming into the Christmas season. I know lots of uh, well-off families who gather all the children in their living room around Christmas, Hanukkah, whatever holiday it is. God bless you. Uh, and, and hand out checks to all the kids up to the maximum for the gift tax exclusion. And they're doing that one because they want to and they, uh, uh, they, they love their kids and they're able to do it. So that's wonderful. Uh, but they're also trying to bring down the level of their taxable estate. Uh, so the more of those they give out during life, the less left over potentially to be subject to the estate tax if their net worth is going to be over that uh, 12920000 when they pass away later. Again, can't go through the whole area of estate planning. Happy to talk to anybody who wants to about that area. Okay. The maximum credit allowed for adoptions, which is very important to some people, um, is, uh, for expenses up to, uh, 15,950. That's up from 14,890. I've seen several client couples who, uh, went through the whole adoption, uh, scenario and that, that, uh, credit is extremely, uh, valuable to them. All right. Um, things that are unaffected by inflation. One, know that under the Tax Cuts and Job Act back in 2017, personal exemptions went away. Personal exemptions went away. The grand bargain was, look, I'm doubling your, not I, right, Congress, is doubling the, I, the standard deduction. And they also um, put in other various things that say, in exchange for doubling the standard deduction and making certain items uh, easier to deduct, um, we're going to take away the personal exemption, which you may agree, may, may recall, was about $4,050 per, per uh, dependent on your return. All that, which was around Auto Avis, who've done our tax returns 
for years, remember, staying in those personal dependents. And when there's divorces, you argue about who is going to get the personal dependent. Well, in 2017, they took out the personal exemptions, again, because the standard deduction went up. They also put in a much higher child tax credit. So uh, for children below 17, um, in, case, in some cases older, if they're at school, college, uh, or, or if they have uh, disabilities, and uh, that was the grand bargain. No more personal depend, uh, dedu uh, dependency deductions, but a uh, much bigger standard deduction and much higher child tax credits. And frankly, you are much better off than, than under getting the uh, dependency deduction. A credit is always better than a deduction in most cases. And so, um, um, uh, so of course, there's no inflation adjustment like there used to be on personal exemptions because they don't exist anymore. All right. Uh, there used to be an old limitation on itemized deductions. If your income was high and you added up all your itemized deductions, you were going to itemize because they were far greater than your standard deduction. You used to like lose 3% of your itemized deductions if your income was uh, was too high. Well, that, that all got taken out by the um, Tax Cuts and Jobs Act in 2017. It was a tremendously uh, complicated calculation. Uh, it was targeted at uh, higher income folks, and I'm glad it remains gone. So, of course, there's no inflation adjustment related to that because it, it doesn't exist. Okay, um, there's some issues with the lifetime learning credit so that you can take deductions for uh, going back to school, and uh, um, the, the, you can look at that under the lifetime learning credit calculations. All right, so uh, some more flat-out good news. Uh, and this came through, oh, um, some time ago, I think like a month ago, the Social Security Administration. Again, they keyed off the CPI, Consumer Price Index, which is low. I, I, I can say that that's not a political statement. It is factual. It is factual. They undercount inflation. And um, But based on even that, that they got from the... Department of Commerce, they uh, raised Social Security for the coming year by 8.7%. You don't have to do anything. Uh, they'll recalculate it, start sending you bigger checks or doing direct deposits, 8.7%. And this, again, comes, I, I just fly back to the 1970s in my mind because I watched some of the congressional debates. And, and uh, again, the World War II elderly folks at, those, at that time said, look, I, I paid my Social Security all these years. Often, a lot of them went to war. Uh, they, they then came back, had their careers, uh, bought their homes, uh, raised their children, or, or some didn't buy homes, you know, whatever. They, they paid all their income taxes all these years, and now because of the Jimmy Carter year inflation, they find their purchasing power going down by 10 and 20% a year, and uh, they got Congress to say, uh, nope, nope, uh, you're going to have to increase my Social Security to keep me even on purchasing power, uh, and I will go as so far to say it's a lie. That adjustment should be 13%, in my humble opinion, not 8.7%. Uh, the cost of living adjustment, or COLA, will boost the average monthly check retirees receive in January by 146 to $1,827. That's the average person will get a $146 increase. The Social Security Administration said Thursday, uh, that builds on last year's being the adjustment for the 2022 year. We got 5.9% COLA increase. 
Uh, and again, that was too low, which was the largest bump since 1982. Before then, the COLA increases were an average of about 1.7%. Uh, and to the people, you know, on Social Security, for a lot of them, this is really, you know, this is the difference between having enough food and not having enough food or being able to pay for their medicines and not being able to. I mean, it's a really important thing, and it's a tremendous, and I apologize, I was going to study it, but this is hundreds of billions of dollars of uh, in, in addition, additional cost to the federal government, right? And it's in the law. It automatically kicks in. Nobody can, unless they take the law out, um, they just say, ah, here's the result. Here's the number. And now the federal government deficit gets bigger. Nobody can stop it, uh, again, unless they, they go and take it out of the law, which would be political suicide because uh, everybody near Social Security or in Social Security would instantly vote against them. Again, a little bit political there. I'm sorry. Okay, we're moving on there. So these are all, again, uh, issues, and there's more of them. I haven't covered everything. Uh, where there's an attempt to keep the you know, make keep your taxes from going up, uh, where it's only because the, uh, inflation has occurred, and that's generally a good thing. Okay, practitioner priority service. All right, I, I've got. I'm going to read. Uh, this is from the Internal Revenue Service. Our friends there. I'm going to read about this with a few snarky comments. Right. So there's there's been a practitioner priority service over at the IRS for a long time. Um, they're, they're, they're upgrading it. Okay. As uh, many of you have told me, and I read, of course, the, in the Inflation Reduction Act, they provided for, uh, $87,000, 87,000 people, new IRS agents. Now, again, that's over 10 years. All right. So, so, uh, um, um, we, again, I'm trying to stay out of politics, uh, but it's not as bad as it sounds because it's spread over 10 years. Uh, the IRS, like a lot of places, is going to have massive amounts of people retire. Uh, if you call the IRS, it's a war zone. It's so hard to get a hold of them. Uh, and so, the, so should it have been uh, that number of people and uh, a huge amount of uh, money? Uh, one can argue. But going back to the practitioner, I'm a practitioner. I'm a CPA. I'm logged in there. I have an IRS uh, uh, number identifying me as in the club and um, used to be when I first started, you could call the IRS. Somebody would answer the phone after 30 seconds. It would be somebody who pretty much had the information they needed, even using the old 1960 COBOL driven software systems. They could find you, they could find your situation. And uh, the CPA would call and say, look, this is not just a little simple affair uh, where we're fighting with the IRS about this or that. Can you help me out so I don't have to write three letters and wait six months? And uh, I must say that the practitioner, if your case was valid and they could find it on the computer there, uh, they could be extremely helpful, like right on the phone. Boom. I see. You're right. We're wrong. Boom. They'll, they'll clear it up. Um, a lot of that work's now gone to the taxpayer advocate service which is another three-page form to fill out. And the office here is up the road in Oakland uh, for the Bay Area Taxpayer Advocate Service. They tell you you can only call the Taxpayer Advocate Service after you've tried to resolve your issue at least two times uh, with the uh, service center, and, and, and which is also off. You know, that's the, you send, I, I've sent letters and not gotten a reply for a year and a half from the service center. 
So uh, um, it's a tough situation. Anyway, uh, I'll just read what the IRS is doing. They're trying to improve. They, they know that us CPAs and tax attorneys and enrolled agents and other types of preparers, we're dealing, we're the, we're the men in the, in the foxhole, right? We're dealing with the, with the battle. We've got the client who's upset. Uh, the IRS is doing something. And we have the skills and knowledge of knowing how to approach the problem and laying it out and organizing it. So the IRS wants to work with us because usually if they work with us, preparers, uh, practitioners, we can resolve it quickly as opposed to talking to even the taxpayer who just doesn't do this for a living. God, <laughs> who would want to? And, uh, and, and flails around and only knows how to give the IRS half the information. So they want to help the tax practitioners because it just makes the administration of the tax service, uh, tax, um, you know, uh, process easier. So the tax practitioners have long served an important role in our nation's tax collection system uh, as a conduit between the taxpayer and the IRS. The Practitioner Priority Service, PPS, hey, we need, a, we need an abbreviation, PPS, is your first point of contact for account-related issues. Our Practitioner Priority Service is a professional support line staff with IRS customer service representatives specifically trained to handle practitioner account questions. And I agree with that. You're not getting the, uh, the you know, the, the person who's been at the IRS six months, right? They're making two bucks over minimum wage. They haven't gone through uh, much training and they're trying to answer the phone. No, you're getting a pretty skilled person on the practitioner uh, hotline if you can get through. Your PPS uh, number is 866-860-4259. Of course, I tried it the other night preparing for this podcast. Couldn't get through, but uh, but I tried it. And the uh, practitioners, they're supposed to have a, a power of attorney signed or a tax information authorization form 8821 or an 8865. All these are ways where, where we're supposed to have signed on and where the taxpayer has agreed that we can uh, uh, represent them. And when you say represent, that means obtain information, discuss the situation with the IRS. Uh, in my case, I never fill out a power of attorney so that I will ever get a refund check or make the final decision. I'm just the middleman. The taxpayer ultimately has to make the final decision. But you can do a power of attorney where, look, taxpayer says, I don't know. I don't care. Take care of this for me, Joe. And uh, and some tax attorneys and CPAs do that. They they now They are then the taxpayer. I never do that. There's some ethical issues that uh, that you probably should never do that, but I leave other practitioners to do what they want. I will only obtain information, try to get the case resolved as to what is the IRS's point of view, taking into account what our point of view is, and let the taxpayer make the final decision as to um, how it should work out. So they tell you the hours and so forth and, and uh, ways to get your taxpayer transcripts, very helpful. Documents on the IRS system tells you everything they have on record. And uh, so, all right, so enough about that. They're upgrading the practitioner priority service as well they should. Uh, number one, it's they should at least answer the phone and not say, our lines are busy right now. Try again later. And of course, that's the sixth time you have tried. All right, so moving on here. Now, hat tip to uh, Deloitte. As you've heard me say before, and Deloitte have a whole, has a whole team of reporters on uh, Capitol Hill, very well-educated, well-skilled, good writers. And now we're, so we're going to now review uh, post-midterm elections, 
what's going on in the sausage-making machine, that is Congress, where the bills are made and so forth. So this is about 10 paragraphs or so of some interesting st stuff. It gets a little bit granular. And at the end, uh, 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 the good news is, is there's lots of talk, but um, there really isn't any push for significant tax legislation at the moment, is my view. Uh, uh, that could change at any time. Um, they were all waiting to see what would happen with the midterms, and I'll have some comments on that in a minute. Okay, so organizational issues have dominated the opening week of the post-election congressional lame duck work period as the House braced for the change in party control in the upcoming 118th Congress and the chamber's first female speaker announced that she would step down as the Democrat leader. Meanwhile, following midterm election results that fell short of their expectations, Republicans on both sides of Capitol Hill went through many, what many characterized as an airing of grievances, and the party's current leaders encountered some obstacles in their bid for the top positions in the new Congress. Developments in the House of Representatives, uh, signals of the forthcoming shakeup in the House membership Leadership came on November 16th, three days after the lame duck session uh, and more than a week after Election Day, when enough undecided House races were finally resolved to determine that control of the chamber will revert to the GOP when the 118th Congress convenes in January. Okay, so this is, um, read the next paragraph. Uh, as of press time, Republicans have won 118 of the chamber's 435 seats. Democrats have won 212, and five seats remain undecided. The headcount is based on results reported by C-SPAN using data from the Associated Press. And uh, uh, I, now I just want to comment is, uh, uh, so the Republicans have the majority. Technically, that means that the Republican Party gets the name, the committee leaders of each of the committees. The, the, committee, the committee chairman of each of the committees absolutely gets to decide what bills will go through and get presented to either the House or the Senate. Uh, in this case, we're talking about the House to be voted on. Uh, if So the name of the game is to control the committee chairmanships because they can squash any bills brought up by the opposing party that, uh, that they don't like, and they often do. Uh, I, I, I find it very troubling when you have a um, House majority of literally one person out of 435 Congress people. Uh, that, that, as I'll say later, I mean, that's a House divided. There's some history of when it was that close in the past. What the uh, chairmen for the Republicans and Democrats did was they divvied up the various committees. And they said, all right, we'll have Republican chairman in these five committees and we'll have Democratic chairman in these five committees. And uh, because they realized when power teeters on one vote, that's not really good. Uh, and I certainly feel that's not really good and will be trouble in the future. Uh, greatest country in the world, most powerful country in the world, and their politics teeters again on and uh, one person, the uh, vice president, voting to break a tie. Perhaps uh, we're still waiting to see how Georgia will come out in the Senate and in the House. Um, 
again, one one or two votes, depending on some of how these um, still undecided. Uh, uh, in, in, in other words, what I'm trying to mutter out is when you have a majority, you should have a wide majority. You should have 60, 70 percent. You should have a clear majority. But we continue to have decade after decade where everything is on this slim hair uh, margin. And then, of course, uh, both parties, right? There's people who skip over the side. But Democrat uh, are much more uh, unified, usually, and will vote a party line. But uh, Republicans, often you'll have five, six uh, uh, or more congressmen vote with the other side. Uh, so you think you have a majority, but you don't. And then in the in the in the Senate, quite uh, in the news, uh, there have been 13 Republican senators uh, voting with the Democrats on various issues. So um, um, it, it, it's it's a troubling way to run uh, the government. Uh, it's always a problem when it's too close. Uh, we, so moving on here. OK, um, McCarthy, who will be. Uh, the uh, speaker, or will be at least nominated, um, because he's the uh, minority leader right now in the House of Representatives. The shift in party control, uh, again, which is very small, <laughs> puts the current House minority leader, Kevin McCarthy, he's from Bakersfield, about 200 miles south of here, um, from a largely farming community. Bakersfield's fairly good-sized town of, you know, three, four hundred thousand, not, not tremendously large. Anyway, he's up to bat on that. And indeed, he was selected as the GOP's nominee for that position on November 16th by a vote of 188 to 131, easily defeating a symbolic challenge by a guy from uh, Arizona, Representative Andy Biggs. However, uh, McCarthy's margin of victory was nowhere near the 218 votes he will need uh, on the House floor in January to secure the job. The Speaker is elected by vote of the entire House. So to win the gavel, the candidate has to secure an absolute majority of all, both party members, uh, voting, while McCarthy has won over some of his key detractors since his previous unsuccessful run for Speaker in 2015. A faction within the party is demanding a raft of rule changes, more than more on those below, in exchange for their support. So the uh, Mr. McCarthy, Congressman McCarthy, uh, the minor minority leader, can't even get the Republicans uh, to unify around him. It just speaks to this divided uh, form uh, process of government is is not good. Uh, the Speaker of the House is an extremely important position. So like each of the committee chairmen get to decide what bills will go through. But absolutely, they're on the phone every day, every day. I know this for a fact, I've been told. They're on the phone every day with the speaker and they get faxes and emails. Here's what we're going to do. So uh, even though the committee chairman has lots of po power, he will or she will instantly uh, conform to what the chairman will, 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 will uh, pronounce, per, you know, uh, promulgate uh, from, uh, because that's the way the parties work. So uh, having the majority gives you control of the committees. Having the speakership gives you control of the committee chairman, and that's how the game has been played. Uh, Representative Chip Roy of Texas, Texas acknowledged that Biggs was not a serious contender. Okay, uh, we in the House Freedom Caucus just view it as another step in the process to figure out 
where we are going, Roy said ahead of the GOP leadership. So this is just uh, Deloitte is uh, rightfully reporting that there's splits and there's going to be horse trading. And uh, this is just within the Republican Party, much less trying to take on the unified Democratic Party. Um, um, House Republicans also elected Steve Scalise of Louisiana, Congressman, currently the minority whip, to their position of majority leader and Representative Tom Emmer of Minnesota as majority whip. Emmer served the past four years as chair of the Republican National Committee. These are all outside of, you know, uh, that's more party stuff, so I'm going to pass on on that stuff. Uh, again, it's just speaking to, there's problems. Um, so, again, you... you uh, you have technically a majority with 218 Republican votes in the House, but um, if your party's not unified behind you, you're going to have trouble. You might recall years ago, John Boehner abruptly resigned uh, as um, as the Speaker of the House or, or did not go through another election to maintain it because the House Freedom Caucus said, we're not following you. So this is a spinoff uh, group under of Republicans under the Republicans and, and Boehner, although I have many comments about uh, what kind of job he did. Again, I'll leave that alone because it's political. Um, he did make the astute observation that, look, if you guys aren't going to rally around me so that I can take on the Democrats who vote as a clear block, they stick together all the time. Uh, I'm not going to get into why or whatever. Uh, he says, what's the point of being speaker? Because uh, the, the troops are revolting. Uh, I happen to like the House Freedom Caucus, but that's not to this point, is that when you're playing, it's all vote counting, right? It's all who has the most votes, who can actually get a bill through. And Mr. Boehner left saying, this isn't working. Uh, so that that's an important problem um, for that party. Okay. There was various rule changes. All right, so now getting to some of the tax issues, a change in the GOP leadership on the tax writing panel is also in the works as the current ranking member, Representative Kevin Brady of Texas, did not seek re-election this year and is leaving Capitol Hill when the 117th Congress adjourns. Three Republican tax writer representatives, Vern Buchanan of Florida, Adrian Smith of Nebraska, and Jason Smith of Missouri are vying to take the Ways and Means gavel in the new Congress. They want to be chairman of the Ways and Means Committee. Why is any of that important? Because under our Constitution, it says all tax bills start in the House of Representatives because there's a lot more representatives and they have to run every two years. So the theory was that they understand what the people want. In the House, in the, um, House of Representatives, the House Ways and Means Committee is the committee where all tax bills start. If they make their way through the House, then they go to the Senate. The Senate Finance Committee does their thing. So there's some people who want to uh, become chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee. Extremely powerful when you get down to the nitty-gritty and, and certainly some uh, policy issues about um, how a tax bill is going to end up uh, comes out of those names. That's why I named them. Because that's where a lot of people send money, contributors, because they want something in the tax bill. They uh, get some contributions to the uh, chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee. That's the really a direct route. Um, hopefully, you know, it's an honorable and 
and your position has merit, but um, there that's going on there. Okay, then there's some clashes in the Senate uh, on the Republican side also as to what's going to happen there. Okay, so um, going on in terms of now getting to what might be happening from a tax standpoint, there continues to be a bipartisan support for repealing or deferring a change within tax code section 174 originally enacted as part of the tax cubs and club tax cuts and jobs act i work with clients on this is that that research and development expenses uh, used to be able to deduct them immediately just like you can for gap for accounting purposes well the tax cuts and jobs act said when you get to 2022 uh, you need to capitalize them treat them as as an asset and then amortize them over five years. There's been many efforts to reverse that for the obvious reason is a tax deduction all at once once is much better than uh, getting one over a period of time, which uh, uh, you know uh, smooths out over time the tax reductions. Other sought-after business provisions include reversing the TCJA enacted changes to the one generally required companies to calculate the adjusted taxable income based on earnings before interest. I'll just tell you what, you know, there was, there was a, you could get limited on your interest under a, a bill that went through the, it's, it's problematic in computation. It has a very negative uh, effect, increasing taxes. And uh, so some want to get rid of that. Um, they also want to uh, change issues uh, with the bonus depreciation. Uh, they want to slow it down. The, the nice thing about the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, again, not getting into politics, was it had bonus depreciation if you're a business. Basically, almost everything, I know I'm exaggerating, but you could write 100% of it off in the first year. No, take it over 10 years or five years or just write it off. Well, now, again, because of the deficits and some time has passed, they want to kind of come back and say, well, maybe not all of it. Maybe we want you to depreciate some of that over time. So they're arguing about that. Uh, the Joint Committee on Taxation staff has estimated the one-year extension of the child tax credit, which many want, uh, in the Build Back Better legislation that cleared the House but stalled in the Senate would have reduced the federal receipts by $185 billion over the 10-year budget window, and that a permanent extension where they go and say, what would this cost for like 30 years and do uh, present value accounting and so forth, receipts by more than $1.2 trillion ttt trillion under conventional scoring methods and 1.4 trillion under dynamic scoring methods would take into account certain macroeconomic you know, they have all kinds of ways of manipulating the money and the numbers but that's a lot of money but there's really calls for more and more child tax credits including an iteration of the build back better bill legislation approved by the house ways and means committee last year but admitted the and omitted the house passed measure would have a cost to the Treasury of just over $4 billion, with a B. Um, uh, that's a four-year delay, right, uh, uh, from. So, so they're, there's, they're always looking at child tax credits. Excuse me, people with children need help. And um, uh, certainly, but um, there's, there's a cost. And so that's uh, bubbling around in the sausage machine. Uh, also, uh, Congress uh, Senator Whiting from uh, Oregon uh, is deep into discussions with members of the House Ways and Means Committee to resolve differences 
and their prospective proposals of another round of the Retirement Security Protection Bill. That's generally pretty good. They, they, they tighten up the rules so that uh, people get to use 401ks and IRAs and so forth and uh, try to protect that they actually get the money later uh, and uh, that there's good oversight and regulation. Debt limit. This is a big one. Well, you know, because every every uh, year, sometimes more, there's there's only a, a, so much that the government can write checks for. And then the little accountant at the Department of Treasury has to come to the uh, to come to the congressmen and senators and say, "I'm sorry, um, uh, we're out of money. We can't write checks, and they need to uh, raise that debt limit now uh, one more time in order to be able to write checks." Or the federal government basically is writing bad checks, so that would be a disaster. So they're looking into raising the debt limit as they always tend to have to do to keep the government going. Okay, so uh, just to end this up here, thank you for uh, going through this long uh, process here, but uh, uh, that's it for now. I just want to continue to say all hail the administrative state because uh, that's what we're going through these days. Uh, we have a huge amount of administrative professional folks in Washington who uh, are there in large part to keep the system going. And uh, that is a, a detriment and an interference to all of us. Uh, the United States here has the curse of over $250 trillion. That's trillion with a T of national debt. They will tell you um, that it's $30 trillion or $32 trillion in uh, treasury, but that's just the bonds that are outstanding on the public bond markets, the real obligations, if you look at the contracts and the promises, uh, the covenants of the federal government, it's more like $250 trillion. That number has been validated by a lot of people in colleges and universities who study this. And that uh, basically will ruin the lives of our children and grandchildren. But the tax system has to keep going. And uh, in order, because of <laughs> If the money keeps doesn't keep coming in so they can at least pay the interest and uh, roll over the old bonds for new bonds and refinancing, I, I, again, I'll, since we haven't talked for a while, I'll repeat the point that somewhere buried in that $32 trillion of outstanding treasury bonds goes all the way back to the Civil War that was borrowed to pay for bullets and cannons. And that's just a travesty that we would pass on to us. We have escalated that date, that debt dramatically, 10, 20, 30, 100 fold, and we'll pass it on to our children. So um, that's not political. That's just the facts. Uh, my name is Ron Cohen. I'm with the CPA firm of Greenstein, Rogoff, Olson & Company. I'm glad to be back as we push towards year end. And um, I'm always here at 510. 797-8661. I'm at extension 237. I'm your humble servant, and I will continue to just push on with our tax planning for clients to uh, legally minimize their taxes for the 2021 year and to continue to help them comply, comply, and comply. Talk to you next week. Thank you. Thank you.